Welcome to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide for October, November and December 2012. Titled, Growing in Christ, it's brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Lesson 13 for December 22 to 28, When All Things Become New. Sabbath afternoon, December 22. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to the end of this quarter's studies. We come to a special time in Christendom around the world where people have their eyes turned toward Jesus. But Lord, we are looking not just at that, but at the beautiful things that will occur in the future. And as we look forward to that, we pray that your word will be open to us today, that our hope may be strong, that our faith may be such that we will be yours forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Revelation 21 and verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Let's read that again, Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And the key thought for this week is, what is the millennium? When does it happen? And to what does it lead? Sir Thomas More, who lived from 1478 to 1535, was an English author who coined the word utopia in order to depict an imaginary island with a seemingly perfect social and legal system. Since then, the word has been often used pejoratively to denote the impossibility of the idea of a perfect society. After all, look at how many times that humans have tried to create utopias they have always failed, and miserably so. The Bible, however, teaches about the true utopia. In a sense, it has been the goal toward which the Godhead has been working ever since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. God wants to bring humanity back to the utopia he had originally created for us. In the heavenly sanctuary, Christ will conclude his work for the salvation of humanity. After that, he will come to earth a second time, but with a glory never before seen. He will resurrect the dead saints and translate those who are living, and all of them will reign with the Lord Jesus in heaven for one thousand years. This is the time that we call the millennium, for the word thousand. The beginning of the millennium marks the onset of the only utopia humans will have known since Eden before the fall. Sunday, December 23 Events Inaugurating the Millennium If the millennium marks the beginning of God's utopia for his people, it's only natural for us to try to know when the millennium will begin and what it will be like. The millennium as a concept appears in Revelation 20, where it is mentioned six times between verses 2 
and 7. In order to know the time of the millennium, the place of Revelation 20 in the overall flow of the book of Revelation needs to be determined. Although the book does not follow a straight timeline, in this case it is not too difficult to determine when the millennium begins. Question. Compare 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 to 18 and Revelation chapter 20. How does the nature of the resurrection as mentioned in these two passages help to define when the millennium begins? What connected events can you find in these passages? 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 to 18 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And we'll compare this with Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign and live with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil, who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, for ever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Sometime before Jesus' second advent, Revelation predicts that three powers, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, will gather the nations to oppose the work of Christ and his people, as recorded in Revelation 16.13. 
At the time of Christ's coming, Revelation 19 and 11, the nations will gather to make war against Christ. But in the process, the beast and the false prophet will be destroyed, Revelation 19, verses 19 to 20. Revelation 20, then, takes up the fate of the third power, the dragon. While the dead in Christ are being resurrected, during what is here called the first resurrection in verse 5, the dragon, Satan, will be captured and cast into the bottomless pit for 1,000 years. Some of these amazing events are depicted also in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. These passages together help to explain what happens before the millennium begins. That beginning, of course, coincides with the second advent of Christ. The dead in Christ will be resurrected to join the faithful living, and both groups will be taken to heaven. The wicked living at the time of Christ's advent will be slain by his brightness, as 2 Thessalonians 2.8 indicates, and the desolated earth will become the prison house of Satan, who will be bound for one thousand years by, as it were, a chain of circumstances. The reason given for Satan's imprisonment is so he might not deceive the nations any longer. Revelation 20, verse 3. Many see a symbolic link between the banishment of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 and the circumstances of Satan during the millennium. So to finish today, go back over the events revealed in these verses. They talk about supernatural happenings that reveal the greatness and power of God in contrast to the weakness and impotence of humankind. How can we always keep this important contrast before us? Why would that be a good remedy for pride and self-sufficiency? Monday, December 24, in the midst of the millennium. Question. Read Revelation 20, 4-6 again. What evidence there shows us that the millennium unfolds in heaven, at least for the saved? Verses 4-6. to six, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. A specific segment of the group who will participate in the millennium are described as the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who would not worship the beast or his image and have not received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. As Seventh-day Adventists, we understand that the Bible doesn't teach the existence of separate, immortal, conscious souls. This text instead is portraying those who went through the experience of persecution as portrayed in Revelation 12, 17 to 13, verse 18. 
At the second advent, at which time occurs the first resurrection, these persecuted souls come back to life and, after the resurrection, reign in heaven with Christ. Question. Revelation 20 verse 4 draws our attention to another event during the millennium, when it says that judgment will be given specifically to the redeemed. Knowing that the faithful are reigning with their Lord and that the wicked were slain for the, by the brightness of Christ's coming, what is the nature and purpose of this judgment? Verse 4 And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who would not worship the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. One of the three things that we focused on last week was the judgment connected with Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary before the second advent. That judgment is different from the judgment in Revelation 24, which is really a fulfilment of Christ's promise in Matthew 19.28, and which corresponds to Paul's statement that the saints will judge the world in 1 Corinthians 6. The concept of judgment in the Bible is rich and multifaceted. The final judgment has three phases, the first of which is the one associated with Christ's priestly ministry in the heavenly sanctuary. Seventh-day Adventists call this the investigative phase of the final judgment. Next, there is the millennial review phase of the judgment, which is referred to in Revelation 20 verse 4 and in 1 Corinthians 6. In this phase, the redeemed will have an opportunity to examine God's ways and judgments with regard to the agents of rebellion. The third phase of the final judgment is the executive phase, which is part of the events that will occur at the end of the millennium. So to finish today, keeping what you've read today in mind, read 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. What important hope is found here in view of the fact that we have so many unanswered questions? Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. Tuesday, December 25, Christmas Day in many parts of the world, and I just want to wish you the best that God can give to you this day. Events at the end of the millennium. Question. Read Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 to 9. What event marks the close of the millennium, and what opportunity does it provide Satan? Verse 7 Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them.
Reversal of the circumstances of Satan marks his being released. This event is linked with the resurrection of the rest of the dead who did not live again until a thousand years were finished. The phrase Gog and Magog is used figuratively, as in Ezekiel 38 verse 2, to describe those whom Satan will succeed in deceiving, the wicked from all ages. It is this universal multitude that Satan will inspire to try to overthrow the city of God. Revelation 20 verse 9 suggests that the city, the New Jerusalem, at this time will already have descended from heaven to earth, presumably with Christ, and Satan and his host will march against it. A detailed description of the city is given in Revelation chapter 21. Question. As said earlier, Revelation does not move in a distinctly chronological order. Look at verses 11 to 15 of chapter 20. How is the idea of judgment expressed here? What is the significance of the fact that final punishment occurs after the saints are involved in judgment? Verse 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. From a book titled Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, published by the Review and Herald, page 932. During the millennium, the saints participate in a deliberative judgment that reviews the cases of the lost of this earth and the fallen angels. This judgment is evidently necessary in view of the cosmic nature of the sin problem. The course of the rebellion of sin has been the object of concern and interest on the part of other worlds, as expressed in Job and Ephesians. The whole interlude of sin must be handled in such a way that hearts and minds throughout God's universe are satisfied with its treatment and conclusion, with particular reference to God's character. It is especially important for the redeemed from earth to understand God's dealings with those who called for the rocks to fall on them and deliver them from the face of him who is seated on the throne. They must be totally satisfied that God was just in his decision regarding the lost. And so to finish today, what does it say about the character of God that we ourselves can be involved in the judgment of the lost? How does this concept fit in with the whole idea of the Great Controversy? Wednesday, December 26, The New Earth Revelation 20 ends with the elimination of Satan and his hosts. Revelation 21 opens with the vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Question. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 5 carries the promise that God is making all things new. 
In what ways does this reflect the Genesis creation account of Genesis 1 and 2? But what are the differences? Let's read Revelation 21 verses 1 to 5. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these things are true and faithful. The word translated as new in Revelation 21 verse 1 emphasizes something that is new in form or quality rather than a new event in time. God's purpose in the Genesis creation remains unrealized until the promise to make all things new is fulfilled on the new earth. Hence, the whole creation groans and longs for liberation, as expressed in Romans chapter 8. God's new creation, then, will consist of the liberation of the cosmos and the earth from their present states of incompleteness and the bringing of them into conformity with His design. Consequently, while the new creation will definitely be different from the old, there will be some continuity between the two. Like the old, the new earth will be a real, tangible place inhabited with real, physical beings. The new earth will be a renewed earth, purified, as it were, by fire. Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that too. Question Read Revelation 21, verse 11, to chapter 22, verse 5, in order to capture the physical aspects of the New Jerusalem, the capital city of the New Earth. In what way does John's description portray the reality of the city? Beginning Revelation 21, verse 11. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates and names written on them. Which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel? Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. 
The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honour into it. Its gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honour of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign for ever and ever. One thing is clear. We are talking about a literal, physical place. The pagan heresy of the physical being bad and the spiritual being good is again debunked by Scripture. Although words are limited in what they can convey, even inspired words... They can teach us to know that a real inheritance awaits us. How important it is to remember that this world, with all its imperfections, is not the way it was supposed to be. It is an aberration, one that Christ came to fix. In contrast, the depiction that we see in Revelation, no matter how hard it is for us to grasp, knowing only a fallen world, is the eternal reality that awaits us. What a hope we have, especially compared to those who believe that death is the end of everything. Thursday, December 27, Life in the New Earth Question. Read Revelation chapter 21 verse 3. In what way will this stupendous fact alter the life experiences of the inhabitants of the new earth? Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them, and be their God. Perhaps there isn't another awe-inspiring vision throughout the Bible comparable to the one that John the Revelator describes here. The new earth will not only be home to human creatures, but also to God. The holy, transcendent creator of the universe will grace the community of the redeemed with his presence. Of course, God will forever remain distinct from his creatures, but in the new earth, the separation between God and humanity that was brought about by sin will be removed. Also, true fellowship will be restored, not only between God and humans, but between humans and nature 
and within nature itself. John describes there being no more curse in Revelation 22 verse 3, and the prophetic anticipation of the cessation of animosity within the animal world is also described as coming to pass in Isaiah chapter 65. Beyond the restoration of complete fellowship, the elimination of the groaning of the creation will mean that all that is harmful, decay, disease, death and suffering, will be things of the past. Question. Read Psalm chapter 8. What is the message for us here, especially in light of what we have studied this quarter? O Lord our God, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honour. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The implication of God's presence on the new earth and the implications for life there are immense, especially as science has revealed to us, as never before, the size and scope of God's creation. The estimated size of the visible universe is many billions of light-years wide. However, scientists now speculate that this immense and vast cosmos represents only about 7% of what's actually out there. And to think, the God who created all that not only died for us, but will dwell with us for eternity. At some point, because of the limits of our fallen minds, we have to stop trying to think about this rationally, but instead fall to our knees and worship and praise the One who not only created us, but redeemed us and now promises to live with us for all eternity. Friday, December 28. From the book The Great Controversy, pages 485 and 486, we read, In the typical service, the high priest, having made the atonement for Israel, came forth and blessed the congregation. So, Christ, at the close of his work as mediator, will appear without sin unto salvation, Hebrews 9.28, to bless his waiting people with eternal life. As the priest, in removing the sins from the sanctuary, confessed them upon the head of the scapegoat, so Christ will place all those sins upon Satan, the originator and instigator of sin. The scapegoat bearing the sins of Israel was sent away unto a land not inhabited, Leviticus 16.22. So Satan, bearing the guilt of all the sins which he has caused God's people to commit, will be for a thousand years confined to the earth, which will then be desolate, without inhabitant, and he will at last suffer the full penalty of sin in the fires that shall destroy all the wicked. 
and from the same book, page 674 to 675. A fear of making the future inheritance seem too material has led many to spiritualize away the very truths which lead us to look upon it as our home. Christ assured his disciples that he went to prepare mansions for them in the Father's house. Those who accept the teachings of God's word will not be wholly ignorant concerning the heavenly abode. Human language is inadequate to describe the reward of the righteous. It will be known only to those who behold it. No finite mind can comprehend the glory of the paradise of God. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, there are three basic positions with some variations within the Christian church regarding the millennium. One, that it represents the era between the first and second advents of Christ. Two, that it is a long period of peace and righteousness on earth before Christ appears, brought about in part because of the preaching of the gospel and social reforms. And three, that the millennium, a period of 1,000 years, will take place after Christ's return and it will happen in heaven. Seventh-day Adventists, as we have seen, take the third position, with the millennium unfolding in heaven, not on earth, as some erroneously believe. What problems do the other options present? 2. Read Revelation 21:27. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What do you understand about this exclusion from the New Jerusalem? What other exclusions are there, and why? 3. Dwell on the idea of human attempts to create utopias. What examples can you think of? What were the results? Why have they always failed? And why do these failures reveal to us our utter dependency upon God's supernatural intervention in the world? And that brings us to Inside Story. Our mission story for this week is titled, God Prepares a Way. Moisey drove a taxi in Cameroon to earn a living. He was single and lived with his mother. A Seventh-day Adventist friend often talked about the Bible. As Moisey began to understand the importance of the Sabbath, he quit driving his taxi on Saturday. Moisey's aunt Paulette saw Moisey's interest in God and invited him to church and evangelistic meetings, sitting with him to help him to find the Bible texts. Moisey gave his life to Christ. Nonsense, Moisey's mother said when she learned her son wanted to become a Seventh-day Adventist. But he was determined. When he was baptized, his mother ordered him to leave her house. Moisey moved out gave up taxing driving, and became a literature evangelist. His passion to share God's literature with others was contagious. When his mother saw how God was changing his life, she began attending the Seventh-day Adventist church. She has since been baptized. Moisey was sent to another town to hold evangelistic meetings. There, eight people took their stand for Christ. Church members urged him to prepare for the ministry. What greater joy can there be than to win souls to Christ, Moisey thought. He prayed about it, and the call grew stronger. 
One day, Moisey received a text message from Marlis, a school friend who was facing school exams. As Moisey prayed for her, he felt impressed that one day they would marry. He told the pastor who urged him to surrender the future to God. Melis lived far away, so the two talked and prayed by telephone. Moisey was concerned that Melis might not want to be a pastor's wife, but before he could ask her, Melis told him that she felt he should become a pastor. The two knew that God had brought them together. A few months later, they were married. But other obstacles stood in their path. Marlies was teaching school five hours from Cossandai Adventist University where Moisey would study. But God had prepared a place for them. Moisey's in-laws moved to the town near the university. He could live with them while he studied. During vacations, Moisey and Marlies canvass and give Bible studies together. The money Moisey earns from coal portering helps to pay his school fees. I'm convinced that this is God's plan for us, Moisey says. It won't be easy, but With God, all things are possible. Our mission offerings support evangelism and education in Cameroon and around the world. Recently, a 13th Sabbath offering raised funds to help Cossandai Adventist University to grow so that more young people can prepare for service to God. This has been Dr. Percy Harold with a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired in Queensland, Australia and brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is still faithful. Faithful.